The children are dismissed for children's church, so if that's you, people are excited. The rest of you, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll be reading John chapter 6, verses 41 through 71. As the children are leaving, uh, I want to frame this uh, message in the idea of eating and drinking. Eating and drinking. Um, And one of the things that we were able to do over uh, the Christmas holiday is that we were actually able to go uh, back to Virginia. And one of the things that um, we we decided that we were going to do for Christmas uh, uh, celebration with my family is my parents were coming over to our son's house, and we were all there. And we said, well, what are we going to eat? You know, and we're thinking like, well, do we do turkey? Do we do, you know, stuffing? Do we do kind of like a Thanksgiving revisited? Uh, but one of the things that happens in Smithfield is this one place called Sal's. It's a pizza place, and it has great pizza. I mean, great pizza. Pizza that I have not found yet here in Lawrence. And I've been looking. And it's sad to me that little, tiny, Smithfield, pork-producing, you know, place would have Sal's Pizza, and it's a glorious place. And so I was so excited because we were going to get to eat pizza on the 26th and celebrate Christmas. But then beyond that, uh, my, my daughter-in-law's uh, beloved grandmother makes a cheesecake, and this cheesecake is unrivaled. Uh, Matter of fact, it is the closest thing ever to Carnegie Deli in New York City. And since Carnegie Deli has now since closed in New York City, I think it's probably the best cheesecake that I've ever had. I mean, you you eat and you just look forward to it. So I guess it was a big cheese fest. We should live in Wisconsin, you know, because it was pizza and then it was cheesecake. And then we put, uh, I think we put cherries on top of the cheesecake. It was a glorious time. And so when we eat, we eat well. And there's, there's this aspect of what Jesus is doing in John chapter 6 is he's trying to relate to the people. And John is giving us this story about how Jesus has fed the people in John chapter 6. Again, John chapter 6 is the longest chapter in the New Testament. And what Jesus begins with in John chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000. And really you have about probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20,000 people where Jesus feeds with just a few small fish and a few small barley loaves really a few sardines and barley loaves. And, and what John is getting at in the midst of this is he's talking about eating and drinking, and everybody in the ancient world understands eating and drinking. And I don't know, but I'm fairly certain that all of you understand eating and drinking as well. Anybody here not hungry right now? <laughs> You're like, man, I hope this sermon is short because I'm hungry. You know, I'm ready to go. Like, where are we going to go? You know, I mean, that's what we're thinking about. You know, hopefully, you know, you've already made plans and you figured some stuff out for, for eating. But Jesus is, is relating uh, belief in him, belief in him so that uh, to eating and eating bread. We talked about that last week. And when he says, I am the bread of life. Well, today he makes a, a statement that basically takes his mega church of 20,000 or so people down to about 12. And he, and he says these things to, um, to startle, to challenge, and to say, no, it's not about filling your bellies, but it's about believing and trusting in me. Now, as we read this passage, immediately you are going to be thinking about communion, okay? When, because what we'll see is eating and drinking on Jesus' flesh and his blood, we immediately think of communion, But all that he is saying here happens prior to the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so 
from our vantage point, we can look backwards to John chapter 6 and get some elements of communion, but Jesus isn't really talking about communion here. As a matter of fact, uh, in seminary, uh, in reform school, as I like to call it, um, I had a professor named Mike Glodo, and he came and preached at the ordination, both you know, my installation and ordination 20 years ago or so. And, and I remember going to John 6, and he was doing um, advanced biblical exegesis. Um, and I just throw that out there just so you know that I had it. Uh, so advanced biblical exegesis, and we were doing John chapter 6. And I was like, oh, John chapter 6, that's easy, man. That's just, that flows right into communion, right? And then he says this, if any of you writes about communion, you will fail this class. Because this passage is not about communion. And I was like, oh, I need to think a little differently. Now, it is talking about communion as we look backwards, but in terms of when it was given, Jesus is trying to relate to the Jews, and he's trying to say that you think that manna in the wilderness was the greatest or one of the greatest miracles, and it was filling your bellies. I'm here to tell you that you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood in order to um, be saved, in order to have life. So let's just read it. Uh, let's read the text, and then we're going to jump into it. We're going we're to work all the way through uh, John chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 40. So, hear the word of the Lord. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up the la on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him." As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him, eating and drinking the flesh of God, thinking about that. And we all say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So, when I think about this, it's not talking about the sacrament. Let me uh, talk about it in this way. First of all, you know, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If he were talking about uh, Passover, if he were talking about communion, he would say something to the effect, I am the Lamb of God. That was what Je- that's what John said in John chapter 1. He also uses this terminology. He actually doesn't say, this is my body broken for you. He actually says, this is my flesh and you must feed upon it. When Jesus is instituting communion, he uses the term body, not the term flesh. The the Greek word are very, very different there. We also see this, that these events happen one full year before Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. So Jesus is not speaking about the sacrament, although as we look back, we can see that the the sacrament um, is maybe in Jesus's mind, but certainly the Jews who are hearing it for the very first time are going, we don't understand this. But I want you to think about this, like Jesus really says some, some crazy stuff here, all right? Some things that are really going to upset the populace. I mean, he says that you're, first of all, he says, you know, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. And notice what the people do in verse 41. He says this, the Jews grumbled. There's a grumbling, there's a hissing, that's what's going on. You, have you heard that when, when somebody says something controversial and you'll hear the crowd begin to murmur and kind of just talk amongst themselves, right? Like, well, can you believe he said that? I can't believe he said that. He shouldn't say that, right? And so Jesus, rather than actually, um, you know, qualifying what he says, saying, you know, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not being clear. You know, let, me, let me say this. Um, let, let me just say a few other controversial things. For example, he says, um, I am the bread that came down from heaven. In verse 44, it says this. Imagine this. You're a Jew and you're listening to this. And Jesus says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So what he's saying there among all the Jews is, unless the Father is drawing you to himself, you will not be raised up on the, on the last day. And by the way, who is it that raises people up on the last day? It's me. And so if you're a Jew listening to this, you're, you're just incredulous that Jesus is actually speaking this way. Again, your bellies are full from the previous day. You're there because you know, Jesus is a spectacle, and now Jesus begins to say some really, really hard things to the people, uh, the, the, the Jewish people. He goes on to say, um, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And they're like, okay, we got that, Jesus is talking about bread. And, and then he says, um, I am the bread of life. Again, he says it again. And he says, you're always talking about the manna, but really, I'm the bread of life. Everybody who ate manna in the wilderness, they died. But if you eat this bread, which is me, 
And this bread, in verse 51, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the grumbling that happens in verse 41, the, the temperature in the room is raising up. It is getting more volatile. It is like the house of common on steroids at this point, because then the Jews then disputed in verse 52. And, and you go from grumbling to disputing. So they're now talking and they're yelling, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus said to them in verse 53, truly, truly, remember 26 times in the gospel of John, when Jesus says truly, truly to you, he is revealing who he is. So every time we see truly, truly in the gospel of John, Jesus is about to tell us something more about himself. And why was John writing? John was writing in chapter 20, verse 31, so that you might believe and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. And the idea of life here is life fulfilled, a joyful life, a peaceful life. We'll get, we'll get to that. But Jesus says, <laughs> if it's not bad enough that he says, whoever feeds on my flesh will have eternal life. But then he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What's astounding here in the midst of the scripture is that Jesus doubles down on what he's saying. He says, I'm the bread of life, and they begin to murmur. And then he says, oh, I'm the bread that came down from heaven, and you must eat of my flesh. And then they began to dispute. And if Jesus, and at this point, if, if I'm like, you know, one of the disciples, you know, I'm thinking, Jesus has had a long day. Jesus is just, I'm not sure what he's talking about, but hey, hey, Jesus um, is going to, he's going to clarify all of these things now, okay? You guys just sit tight. He's going to clarify what he meant. So Jesus, can you please clarify what you meant by I am the bread of life and you must eat of my flesh? Just soften it a little bit, right? If you just soften it a little bit, it'll be palatable. We can, we can receive your teaching with great faith. And so what does Jesus do? He says, oh no, I'm doubling down. Like, I'm going to double down and say this. Um, I'm going to stick to my guns. I'm going to dig my heels in. And I'm going to say it in such a way. If you don't drink of my blood, you will not have life. Now, if you're a Jew, you don't eat the blood of animals. Like, this is verboten. You would never do this. And so what Jesus says is controversial. It's controversial when he talks about election and irresistible grace in, in John chapter 6, verse 44. It's controversial when he says, I'm the bread of life. It's controversial when he says, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. So let's talk about that. What does he mean when he says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood? Well, I think, first of all, it's this idea of, of eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus is this. It's not literally eating the flesh and drinking the blood. It is eating, imbibing, and being joined to Christ through faith and belief. And, and again, what we see is that Jesus says in verse 40, he goes, for this is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. So there's this idea of believing. In verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He's not putting another expectation upon us that we would drink and eat this, but what he's saying is he's elaborating upon the idea of drinking and eating. Eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood, he's saying, I want you to understand and believe in me. And I want you to believe in me such a way that you actually take it into yourself. Now, let's think about this, this metaphor that he's elaborating upon. I have these points today. Matter of fact, how many do I have? One, two, three, four, five, six. Man. All right. They'll go fast, I promise. All right. First is this, is that eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus is necessary. It is a necessary thing. You know, when we think about, you know, uh, Jesus who says, you know, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, in verse 35 of John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's this, this idea of that you can never come to the Father without drinking his blood and eating his flesh. And again, it is in being joined to Christ. It is believing. It is believing not just in an intellectual way, but it is believing in your heart that there is no other way whereby a man can be saved or a woman. We can only be saved in Christ. It is only through faith and belief in Jesus that we are saved. It is absolutely necessary. There are so many people today that think that once they die, they will you know, be ushered into heaven based upon their good works. And the reality is we don't have good works. Everything that we do is tainted by sin. The prophet Isaiah says even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. It is necessary for us to feast on the, on the flesh of Christ, and to drink deeply of his blood. But secondly, eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus is personal. Eating and drinking is something that we need to do for ourselves. Now think about this. We just had two new babies born in the congregation. You know, we had two new babies. We have other babies getting to be born. We have other little children. And one of the things that happens is, you know, when you have a new baby, and there are times in the midst of this, this baby, you just want this baby to flourish, you want this baby to flourish. How does this baby flourish? The baby needs to feed, right? And I, I remember with all four of our kids just wanting this child just to simply, you know, drink, you know, to be able to nurse. But I couldn't do anything, especially me. I had nothing to do with regard to that, right? I mean, that is, that is outside of any male role at all, right? All we could do is pray and hope and encourage. And then when, when the baby begins to, you know, drink, and then the baby, baby begins to, to flourish. And, and then what happens is, you know, we rejoice in that. There are times in the midst of feeding the baby that the, that the mother wants the baby to eat and drink and be satisfied, but also to grow and be nourished. And we cannot make it happen. We, eating and drinking the flesh and blood is personal. It is not enough that you were born into a believing family, although that's a great blessing. It is not enough that you were born into a believing family and that you suppose that their faith is yours. You cannot presume upon grace, but must believe for yourselves and trust and drink and eat deeply of the flesh and blood of Jesus. And what does that mean? It means that you deeply believe for yourself. 
It is a beautiful thing to grow up in a Christian family. It is a wonderful thing to have a mother and father who take you to church and love you, but you must decide to follow Jesus and, and say that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Have you done that? Is your faith personal to you? And you know, no amount of cajoling by a parent can make a child do that. Again, Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We long that our children would walk with you, would believe, and would taste and see that you are better. So not only is it necessary, not only is eating and drinking the flesh and blood personal, but eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus is nauseating to the world. Because when they hear it, a matter of fact, the Romans in the early days would say that Christian is, is a cannibalistic religion. We can't allow these Christians to, to um, propagate and to, to flourish in the midst of the Roman you know, world because they're cannibals. And that's not what we're talking about here. But what we are talking about is that when we eat and drink the flesh and blood of Jesus, it is nauseating to the world. The world sees us eat and drink the flesh of the, well, well when, when it sees us eat the, and drink the flesh of, the, of, of Jesus, meaning that we believe and trust in him alone for salvation and for life, they call us fools for doing so. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the, the Apostle Paul says this, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When we trust and believe in Jesus, the world says, I don't want to see you, be around you, because what you're doing is nauseating to me. Similar to, I thought about this in terms of eating and drinking. What are some things just culturally that, that maybe you might see somebody eat or drink and you go, hmm. Um, how about this? Um, do you know there's quite a few people in the world who eat chicken feet? Anybody here ever eat those? I'm just kind of curious. Okay, I'll make sure that, you know, whose ever hand was up. I'm going to ask you what you're going to have for dinner before you, we come over to your house. Um, I grew up in a place where they had a lot of pickled pig's feet. And I remember, you know, like, I, I didn't have them. I just saw them at the, at the, at the deli. And I'm like, ooh, that's rough. Um, Rocky Mountain oysters, um, haggis, black pudding. I mean, black pudding's great until you realize how they make it. And then you're like, oh, I mean, haggis might be good too until you realize what it is and how they make it. Or, you know, like, I don't know, like sushi in the Midwest, not sure. I'm all about sushi. People are like, hey, there's a great sushi restaurant in Kansas. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not real sure about that. I like sushi. Got to be coastal, all right? I want to be coastal with regard to that. You know, brisket, I'm all about it, you know, in Kansas. That's great. But when we think about this, there's, there's this nauseating part of, of believing in Jesus because they would say that what you believe is nauseating to me. You believe in the exclusive claims of Jesus? You believe that Jesus alone saves? And we would say yes. That only in Christ will we have life and peace and reconciled relationship with, with man and God. Only in Christ? There's no other way? What about Islam? What about Buddhism? What about all the other religions? What about you know, the religion of being a nun? No religion at all. And we would say, no, we believe what the scriptures say. That 
We will eat his flesh and drink his blood, and by faith we will be saved. And the world says, but isn't there another way? And we say, no, this is it. There is no other way. And then the world says something like this, but what about all the good people? And you know what we say to that? I haven't seen any yet. I haven't found any yet. I haven't found any good people. I found one good person. His name was Jesus. And he died on the cross so that I might live. So that we might have life eternal and have joy everlasting. You know, eating and drinking in the flesh, eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus is nauseating to the world. They will call us judgmental. They will call us fools. But we find it to be the only way for eternal life. Now, the other idea is this, is that eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus brings us life. Notice what it says in verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there's also this idea is um, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. But in verse 56, there's an allusion to John chapter 15 where we hear the term abide. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And, And Jesus is using this term of sort of ingesting food, ingesting him, being joined to him being connected to him and abiding with Christ. So this idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood is more akin to John chapter 15, where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remain in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You must abide in me, be connected to me. Because when you are connected to Jesus, you have life. And it's this idea of union with Christ. Let me uh, read for you um, this quote from Jonathan Edwards as he speaks about this with regard to union with Christ. By virtue of the believer's union with Christ, he does in fact possess all things. What do you think about that? So drinking and eating, we possess all things because of our union with Christ. But it may be asked, how does he possess all things? What is he the better for it? How is a true Christian so much richer than other people? To answer this, I'll tell you what I mean by possessing all things. I mean that God, three in one, all that he is and all that he has and all that he does, all that he has made or done, the whole universe, bodies and spirits, earth and heaven, angels, humans, devils, sun, moon and stars, land and sea, fish and fowls, all silver and gold, kings and potentates are as much the Christians as the money in his pocket, the clothes he wears, the house he dwells in, or the the food he eats. Yes, properly his, advantageously his, by the virtue of the union with Christ. Because Christ, who certainly does possess all things, is entirely his. So that the Christian possesses it all, more than a wife, the share of the best and dearest husband, more than the hand possesses what the head does, it is all his. Every atom in the universe is managed by Christ so as to be most to the advantage of the Christian, every particle of air or every ray of the sun, so that he in the other world, when he comes to see it, shall sit and enjoy all this vast inheritance with surprising, amazing joy. That from a guy who wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
We possess all of that. And what, what John is trying to get to in the idea of John chapter 6 of eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood is this union with Christ, taking Jesus in and being a part of him. Now, he, he says this, you know, Dane Ortland in this book, Deeper, you know, he says this regarding, you know, what do we get? The, the, the ways that we receive this and, and what do we get? We, we get these things, and these are all theological terms, this idea of we are justified and we are sanctified and we are adopted into his family. We are reconciled to the Father. We are washed clean. We are redeemed out of our slavery of sin. We are purchased and redeemed uh, through the blood of Jesus. We are liberated and we are no longer imprisoned. We are given a new birth, as Jesus speaks about that with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We are our lights, our, our minds are illuminated, the light metaphor, so that we can see clearly, and then eventually we will be resurrected. Think about all of those things, that if we are eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood, all of those things a believer possesses. All of those things are yours in Christ. When we eat his flesh and drink his blood and believe wholeheartedly that he has saved us. Yeah, the idea of eating and drinking the flesh of blood brings about great security and peace with God. I love this, that what we sang about this earlier is that Jesus takes his enemies, or God takes his enemies, and through believing in Jesus, he gives us a seat at his table. And that is, the seat at the table means that we have intimate fellowship with him seated around the table. In Romans 5, we're declared to be enemies, but in Galatians 3, we're the adopted sons and daughters of the Most High King. How does that happen? It happens through trusting and believing in Jesus, eating his flesh and drinking his blood and believing in him. The other thing that we see is that eating and drinking of the world and this is a contrary point, but eating and drinking of the world will lead us to death. In Psalm chapter 119, verse 37, it says this, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. You know, in, in John chapter one, it says Jesus, you know, in him was life and he was the light of men. This idea of life that John is saying, Jesus has come so that you will have life. And what the world does is the world distracts us from having life in Christ and being reconciled to the Father. You're drinking deeply of the world will lead us to death. The things of the world, the wickedness within the world will corrupt your soul and leave you wanting. And even when, you know, we know that, right? Like we know that sometimes the, the corrupt things of the world will lead us to death, but sometimes even the good gifts of God that we take and we elevate, and we elevate them to a place of, of idolatry, we can even take these good things of the world and make them ultimate things, and yet they will never satisfy your soul. There are many of us out here today, and I, and I slip into this on a regular basis. Do you think that retirement will satisfy your soul. If you think that retirement will satisfy your soul, you have believed a lie. And, and I mean, I can set up a, a table of retired people and say like, is it good? Yeah, it's good, right? But it's not going to satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. 
when I think that it will, I will be mistaken. There are single people who think if I can only get married, then it will satisfy my soul. My spouse will satisfy my soul. And I'm here to tell you, we wouldn't have to have a marriage tune-up if that were the case. <laughs> right? Because some of y'all's transmissions has fallen out, you know, and, and we need to tune up, right? We need an overhaul. We need to be rebuilt, right? Like some of you might be thinking like, I don't want to go to a marriage tune-up. I want to go to a marriage rebuild class, right? Like we need to figure this out. Or some people think that, you know, that grandchildren, you know, will be the ultimate highlight of their life. And I, and I don't have any yet. We have one on the way coming in April. And I long for the day when I get to hold that little boy in my arms. But I'm here to tell you, grandchildren are not going to satisfy your soul. As a matter of fact, I've been told by several grandparents, as, as joyful as it is, it's just one more person to worry about. <laughs> It's one more person to be anxious about. It's one more person to pray about. It's a good thing, but we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. It becomes an idolatrous thing in our life. Lord, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. You know, Jesus says this. He says, you know, look at what happens about the manna in the wilderness. Um, he, he says this, he goes, the fathers, in verse 58 of John chapter 6, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Meaning, if you feed on the bread that I am, then you will live forever. And he's juxtaposing it to the bread that happened in the book of Exodus. Now, when you think about the book of Exodus, all the Jews are very, very prideful about manna at this point. And they're saying, yeah, what about manna? We got manna. How many of the Jews who ate the manna got to see the promised land? Anybody know? Two, Joshua and Caleb, because of their faithfulness in Numbers chapter 13. Two, what did the rest of the people do the entire time? They grumbled, they complained, they murmured, and they died in the wilderness. And so what Jesus is saying here is that you think that bread from heaven is going to satisfy you. You think the things of the world are going to satisfy you, but no, it's not. I am the bread from heaven, and if you will drink my blood and eat my flesh, you will be satisfied. Trust me. Believe in me. Now, what happens, what happens here? And this is the last point. It's a brief point. Eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus separates us from the world. Eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus separates us from the world. Because look at what happened in John chapter 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. When Jesus comes and he says, this is what you must do. Believe and trust in me. Drink deeply of my blood. Eat on my flesh. They couldn't take it. And yet, in a rare moment of faithfulness by Simon Peter, and it's, it's a wonderful verse here. So Jesus said to the 12, and he, at this point he's probably left with the 12. Again, this is the worst church growth movement in the history of the church ever, right? From 20,000 down to 12. And he asks them in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Meaning, I've just told you some really, really hard things 
about what is true about God, true about your sinfulness, true about all the things that maybe you were hoping for, that I would bring manna that would feed you forever, are you going to walk away from me as well? And Peter says this, Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let me read, um, let me finish with this story. Let me think about what we believe. There's a story about, a, about an old man. Uh, this is, you know, years ago. An old ragged tramp knocked at the back door of a New Hampshire home one morning and asked for something to eat. The mother invited the poor old man into the kitchen to rest, and while preparing a good meal for him, she learned that at one time he had had a good home and a wife and children. Drink and alcoholism had driven him from one sin to another until his family deserted him. He then drifted from place to place and deeper and deeper into sin until he had nothing left to do but beg. He believed that no one cared what became of him and that it didn't matter much to himself either. The small son of the woman who had offered him food sat near the table watching the old man. Finally, he walked over to the man and placed his little hand on the man's dirty, ragged coat sleeve and looked up into his face and said this, man, do you love God? He asked. He repeated the question several times, but received no reply. Little boy, man, do you love God? The little boy then went to his room and returned with a little money that had been given to him for candy. He placed it in the hand of the old man saying, man, this will buy you some bread. The poor man bowed his head and cried, touched by the little boy's generosity. He left the house and was not heard from for many months. At last, a letter came addressed to the child saying, little one, you saved me from hell. After I left your house, I walked along the road and all I could hear was, man, do you love God? I fell asleep that night under a tree and dreamed of a fair curly haired boy with his hand on my sleeve saying over and over, man, do you love God? That was all I could hear and see for days until I threw myself on the ground and cried all the hardness out of my heart. I saw again the man I used to be, the cozy home I had owned, the loving wife and the dear children that sin had taken from my side. I thought of all I had sacrificed to serve the devil and what I had become. I cried out to God to save my soul and to wash away my sin. Please, Jesus. I write to you today to say I have a job now and clothes and a place to sleep, but I'm an old man. I won't be here long, but God bless you, child, because by grace, you led an old, dirty tramp back to God. You know, what's sweet is that the little boy gave that man some money for bread, but what he ultimately needed was to eat the flesh of Christ and to drink deeply of his blood. You know, before us today, we have communion we have this idea of being joined to Christ. And communion is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And it denotes union with Christ, communion with him, deep fellowship and abiding with Jesus. And this bread represents his body broken for you. And this cup that I'll fill with this 
fruit of the vine, this juice, represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he invites all those who trust and believe in him, who, who recognize that there is no way to the Father except through the Son to come and to, to taste and to drink deeply. Again, this, this bread will always remain bread. And this juice will always remain juice. But what happens is when we take these elements inside of us, it is a visible representation of us trusting and believing in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit will dwell within us, that we will never be left and for, or forsaken, but we will always be with Jesus. That's what this represents. This is a, a meal of the family of God, and he welcomes all those who trust and believe in him to come. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you're unsure, then I would say don't partake, but rather trust and believe. Drink deeply of Jesus. Eat his flesh and drink his blood and believe in earnest that you are a sinner in need of salvation. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we think about these elements in front of us, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would know that we are only saved through Christ and that we would believe and that you would use these elements, Father, to bolster belief, to encourage belief. Father, as you pour forth your means of grace from heaven and just upon your people, Father, we are amazingly blessed. So, Father, deepen our faith. May we trust in you. And may we understand that the blessings of being joined in un union with Christ are all of ours. Father, for the, those who do not believe, who are unsure about their faith, Father, I pray, Lord, that they would trust and believe in Jesus rather than the faith of men. Father, would you help us? Would you save us? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.